This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. You're listening to the Mornings with Simi podcast, and on today's episode... We have always, as a political party, had concerns about the direction that uh, long-term care uh, took at the turn of the century back in 2001-2002. New questions are being asked about the future of senior care after the COVID-19 pandemic has shed a light on some of the issues in care homes. The Prime Minister has announced new funding for students who will not have employment opportunities this summer. We're launching the Canada Emergency Student Benefit to provide immediate help. So what can students expect? And... I was very heartened to hear that the Premier is thinking about how we can find a way to safely restart our film and television industry. The film industry is a crucial revenue generator for the city and the province, but they're facing some big challenges amid the coronavirus lockdown. That and much more coming up on the Mornings with Simi podcast. Well, let's check in this morning and get the latest update from Nova Scotia, where we are learning more about the events that unfolded on the weekend that left 22 people dead and lots of questions about RCMP response as well. Joining us once again, Sarah Ritchie, Global News anchor and reporter in Halifax. Good morning, Sarah. Good morning. Uh, Now, tell me about this surveillance video that I, I watched it this morning, and it appears to show the suspect on Sunday morning. What do we know about this video? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we know that it was taken at a business in Millbrook, First Nation. The timestamp on it is 10.55 in the morning. That would line up with where the suspect is believed to have been at that time on Sunday morning. Uh, but I will say right now, RCMP have not confirmed that this is the suspect in the video for sure. It's a, a man matching his description. And what it shows is an RCMP vehicle or what looks like an RCMP vehicle. And keep in mind, the suspect was driving a very convincing mock-up of one. It pulls into the parking lot, stops. The individual gets out of the car. He seems to take off a jacket, and then he pulls on a reflective vest. All of this done very calmly, very controlled. It doesn't appear in any way that he's in distress. And keep in mind, by 10.55 in the morning, this is, you know, this man would only live for another half an hour if this is him. So he was being actively pursued by police, and he knew it at that point. Yeah, that's the thing about the video, and I watched it too. I thought, well, that doesn't look like anybody who's in any kind of a, a hurry there. Did we get an update mm-hmm. as well from the RCMP yesterday and any more answers to some of the questions that people have? Uh, I'm not sure that we have too many more answers. And, you know, this investigation, to be fair, is going to take an awfully long time. We know 22 people are dead. There are 16 different crime scenes. Five of those crime scenes involve structure fires where homes were entirely burned to the ground. So uh, keeping that in mind that it is the very beginning of a very detailed and complex investigation. Uh, One of the things that we did learn is a little bit more detail on what was happening that Saturday night and Sunday morning. So we now know that RCMP were called for a weapons call at 10.26 p.m. Saturday. That's about the time that witnesses had told us they heard gunshots. So that lines up with what we've been hearing all along. We also know that they found several fires, but no suspect, and that they did a thorough search overnight and found in the morning that the suspect was not within the perimeter they had set up. So you can imagine just what 
what that was like. It's very dark in that part of Nova Scotia at that time of night. There are no streetlights in this area. This is a tiny little place. So you've got to think that that was a pretty chaotic night. We also know that at 9.35 in the morning, they found uh, there was a f possible female victim in Wentworth. And so that, you know, again confirms for them that they were uh, that this individual was outside of the perimeter they knew who he was they had tweeted about it at 10:15 that morning the emergency management office here in Nova Scotia offered to send an emergency alert and the RCMP say they were in the process of preparing one when the suspect was shot so why it took an hour yeah. and a half to work on preparing that alert we still don't know um, one other thing that we did learn yesterday is that the suspect did act alone in this shooting, so that's important to know. And we were asking, uh, reporters were asking about the type of weapons that were used, Simi, and mm -hmm. we don't know anything about them. We haven't been told. RCMP say they can't tell us what type of weapons were used. But what they did say yesterday that's interesting is that as far as they're aware, the suspect did not have a firearms acquisition certificate in Canada. That means any weapons he was using were not legally obtained in this country. Interesting. Okay, I'm sure there'll be lots of questions about that now, too. Uh, also, tell me a bit about the victims here, too, Sarah, because we're hearing more of the stories. In particular, I, I watched some of the video of um, one of the men whose brother was killed in this and how he mm. feels that he just barely escaped. Yeah, there's been just, you know, the, every story is gut-wrenching, right? And every everything that we learn about this, the more details that come out, uh, the more sort of harrowing that becomes as a, as a thing to consider that that was something, you know, people were going through for many, many hours. We've learned uh, quite a bit more about quite a few of the victims of all of this. Their families and friends are coming forward and they want to share stories. And I think, you know, it's really important for people at this time to understand that uh, reporters, reporters don't like making those phone calls, but it it's helpful yeah. for people sometimes to share those stories and so they are and we're trying to make sure that they can um, you know remembering one couple Greg and Jamie Blair both of them were killed uh, in this incident they've been remembered by family as just being very funny very warm and welcoming just a, a real uh, family real tight-knit family that they had and mm -hmm. so their family is left to mourn them and there's a you know more and more stories being posted to our website every day as family members come forward and I think that's one of the important things we want to take away from all of this is just you know what these people were like yes. they were you know in most cases just everyday people yes absolutely those are the important stories stories here. Uh, Sarah, thank you. Thank you very much. That's Sarah Ritchie, Global News anchor and reporter in Halifax. She's absolutely right. If you go online, globalnews.ca, uh, you can see the continuing coverage of this story and many of the profiles and, and, and discussions about the victims here, the ones that need to be remembered. This is Mornings with Simi. We have always, as a political party, had concerns about the direction that uh, long-term care uh, took at the turn of the century back in 2001, 2002. And I think some of the challenges that we anticipated are being uh, graphically highlighted during this time of pandemic. That's Premier John Horgan speaking yesterday. He was actually responding to a question from Global's Keith Baldry about the issues in our senior care industry. And a lot of these issues have been raised by the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. Uh, they wrote a piece about this. And one of the authors of that piece is Andrew Longhurst, health researcher and author, who joins us now to talk more about that. Andrew, good morning and thank you for being here. 
Good morning. My pleasure. Now tell me about this piece that you wrote. What is it that you were setting out about how we look after our seniors? Well, certainly we know COVID-19 has brought into sharp focus a lot of the challenges uh, that have been longstanding in our seniors care sector and uh, especially in long-term care in our province. And uh, we know that these issues haven't emerged overnight. Um, they've been years in the making. And uh, I should first say that it's, uh, we know certainly that seniors uh, are more vulnerable uh, to COVID-19 uh, for a variety of reasons, including uh, age and underlying health conditions. Um, but a lot of the, the challenges um, that we've seen emerge over really the last two decades in the province uh, in the seniors care system um, have been made worse and have complicated our ability to respond to COVID-19, um, especially in the way that staffing um, has been organized in the way that um, service delivery in the province has emerged. So, for example, the um, provincial health officer, Dr. Henry, uh, with the BC government announced a single site uh, order that all staffing in long-term care and assisted living were to only work one site. And they uh, made quite um, uh, a significant move and the right move uh, to uh, increase wages so that no one is going to see loss of income as a result of that order. Because we know um, that many uh, workers actually work multiple part-time jobs. They patch together uh, work at multiple sites as a result of some of the labor uh, policy deregulation that we've seen within the seniors care sector. So a, a number of the staffing challenges that we, we've seen emerge over the years have really come into sharp focus in light of COVID-19. Now, is that because, I mean, there's full-time work if you tally up all the hours, but they're just, they want to keep it with a lot of part-time workers? Well, one of the things that has become a real issue and a real problem in uh, seniors' care is, for example, the use of subcontracting. And so in the early 2000s, we saw um, uh, legislative changes that provided unprecedented rights to um, to care companies and, um, and long-term care uh, chains to be able to subcontract and use these subcontractors uh, to, in essence, avoid paying higher unionized wage rates. And the knock-on effect of that has been a real destabilization in the workforce. And so it's led to severe staffing challenges across the sector. And so with the single-site public health order, um, Dr. Henry and the provincial government realized very quickly that if they were to implement that to ensure that staff aren't working multiple sites, because that could increase uh, the likelihood of spread of COVID-19, um, they would need to make sure that uh, workers aren't going, taking shifts at the highest paid facility. And so important to remember that actually in the 1990s, um, a very thoughtful approach was taken in seniors care in terms of building um, a provincial standard so that no matter what facility, long-term care uh, home you worked in, uh, the wages and the compensation um, would, and the working conditions would be standardized. That was um, severely eroded and has been severely eroded over the last 20 years, um, but beginning in the, the early 2000s. And so that basic structure in mere weeks 
the provincial health officer and the BC government are trying to put that structure back together. Right, but um, do we think that's going to last? I mean, we know it's also one more expensive. We know that they're spending millions more to make this happen in this emergency situation. But is it here to stay? Is the question? How can you take that away from people once this is all over? Well, you're you're absolutely right, Simi. I think the issue here is we can't we simply can't return to the status quo. It was it was creating severe staffing issues even before COVID nineteen. And now it's become even more acute. So I think the issue here is um, the province did announce that it would cost about an additional $10 million to to provide top-up funding uh, to employers to increase the wage rates uh, for those workers affected by this public health order, um, but who are not making that provincial uh, unionized standard wage. The concern here is uh, just in terms of of this being cost effective over the long term, and you're quite right. Um, so we know from the BC Seniors Advocates report in February of this year uh, that many uh, for-profit long-term care operators that are contracted by government to provide services are actually funded at a level that assumes that they're paying that provincial standardized wage, and yet many of them are not. And so the concern here is that, in effect, we could be rewarding a lot of these employers who are being um, who are being funded at a level that assumes that they're paying this wage rate when they're in fact not. Um, so over the long term, I think we need to be looking at more cost-effective strategies to be delivering long-term care, to be delivering other seniors' care services like assisted living. Um, we know that that nonprofit organizations, public health authorities. Um, they don't have shareholders, they don't have investors, so any surplus revenue is going right back into frontline care. It's not going into the pockets of investors. And I think that's really critical here and something that was really um, brought into view by the Senior Advocates' recent report mm-hmm. showing that actually nonprofit organizations contracted by government over-delivered direct care and spent more on direct care in comparison uh, to for-profit companies who on average... Uh, were provided the same amount of funding. So I think that's really critical in this discussion moving forward. All right, Andrew, thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much for your interest in this issue. That is Andrew Longhurst, a health researcher and author. He's written a piece for the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives talking about the senior care industry in this province. And I think one thing is for sure, it is not going to go back to the way it was before. It will not be kind of business as usual when this is all over. We've heard Dr. Bonnie Henry and the health minister and the premier even talking about the concerns they have for the potential second wave of COVID-19 potentially to come this fall, just when flu season is also ramping up. And if that's the case, we already know flu season uh, is a tough time in seniors care facilities. So how will they now go back to doing things the way that they were before, knowing that that was causing potential health risks to the people who live in these facilities. If you have family at one of these facilities, do you want to talk about this? You send me an email, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. I don't know what's happening right now. It is 619 on this Thursday morning, and Nikki Reitmeyer is with us. Nikki, did you just request that song? Don't you recognize that song? Oh, I do. That's why I'm asking you. Did you just request that song? (laughs) 
I, okay, yes, I might have requested the main song from the Netflix show Tiger King. Have you seen it? <laughs> yes, of course I've seen it. <laughs> I've seen it, and that is a show that you just fall deeper and deeper into the rabbit hole with every episode that comes on. Yeah, that's a pretty hard one not to binge. There's so many twists in every single episode. Yeah. I mean, geez, when we find out that the guy's got a musical career, that's a twist <laughs> in the show that leaves your jaw just on the floor going, what? But then and when you, the reality is, the song's pretty good, too. Yeah, but then when you find out afterwards when the show's over that, oh, wait a minute, he wasn't actually writing those songs or coming up with those songs. That's another twist. So, uh, hey, yeah. hold on a second. He didn't, he didn't write his own songs? Are you telling me... That Joe Exotic is like the monkeys? Yes, that's exactly what I'm telling you, Nikki. You need to write, ah. look that one up. I tell you, that show is bonkers, and it just gets one thing <laughs> after another. But thank you for getting us started on that this morning with requesting that song. Uh, today we're going to be talking about bad neighbors. And maybe, you know, normally you don't have to worry about this, but in this time of uh, quarantining and self-isolation, all of a sudden, that's ah, a big problem, right? Well, yeah, I mean, I think that for a lot of people, at least in one location that they lived throughout their lives, certainly they've had um, something near a bad neighbor. For some people, it's on the extreme end of the spectrum. For other people, you go, yeah, you know, it's just the guy who uses his leaf blower a bit too much. But the bad neighbor problem is something pretty typical for most of us. During quarantine, though, a bad neighbor can drive you absolutely crazy yes. because you're home all the time. I was reading this story from the Tri-City News. It was actually a letter that someone had sent to the editor of the Tri-City News talking about their bad neighbor. And the problem with the neighbor, they say, is that the neighbor smokes and they smoke cigarettes a lot, except they're living in an apartment building Ooh. and everybody's contained inside. So this person is smoking in their unit. And of course, all that smoke is, is seeping through the walls and I guess into this other person's unit. They said, uh, the letter writer says, I did not think it would be uh, legal even in this year to experience such torment. She says, I feel upset, trapped, frustrated by not being able to open a window to cool down or breathe some fresh air because, of course, all that cigarette smoke is outside. She said, I doubt that I'm alone in this. No doubt there are many other tenants like me stuck at home, powerless to make necessary changes. And I thought, you know what? I bet she's right. Yeah. I bet there are other people out there right now, whether you're a tenant in an apartment building or, you know, you live in a suburb area where you have a neighbor who's loud or noisy or whatever, that's just making you crazy right now that you're spending all this time at home. I was thinking about this about two weeks ago because my husband dragged the power washer out of the oh. garage, you know, when the weather was really nice. And so he power washed the back and then he power washed the front and then he did the front steps. And I was starting to worry. This this was over a period of like two or three days. And I was starting to worry that man, that power wash is pretty loud. Like we're going to be irritating the neighbors because everybody is home. He made up for the fact by just going and randomly power washing their front walks without oh, without having that's a good move. Yeah, contact, contact from a distance, right? They're at their front door. So he went and did a couple of neighbors and did their front walks. And so I thought, okay, well, at least now that's going to make sure we don't get any complaints about the power washer. He's a smart man. That's smart a very man. smart move. Yes, I, I also have a neighbor who who brings out the, the power washer. I think it's to become his hobby now is that he just finds Listen, things to power wash. There's something deeply because... satisfying about power washing, Nikki. Deeply satisfying. Well, there actually is. Yes. <laughs> It is really satisfying. The noise, not, not so the much. noise, but just the watching the strips of clean, like underneath the when you're power washing. It's that's an amazingly good feeling. 
Yeah, maybe on weekend one, maybe on weekend two. <laughs> but we're like six weekends into this now, and my neighbor still brings out the power washer to wash. I don't even know what is possible to wash anymore. But he's out there with the power washer every single weekend. So your husband, a very clever man, to smooth things over by, <laughs> yeah. by power washing the sidewalk for everyone. Well, else. he'd ran out of other things to do. He'd like fixed my tail light. He'd done the brakes on our other car. Like yeah, he'd pretty much run out of things to do at this point. <laughs> And that's the thing yes. about the neighbors. You have to always be cognizant of your neighbors, especially right now, because you can't afford to just be like, eh, forget it. Whereas normally you'd kind of go off to work and you're like, I'm not going to worry about it. Now you're home all day. You have to worry about it. I had the right out of Jerry Springer experience. Oh, what was this? Maybe two weeks ago, the neighbors across the way. Oh, no. And this was on a hot day. So the, you know, the patio door was open. The windows were open. And they were just screaming at each other oh, no. loud enough for the whole neighborhood to hear. And I thought, okay, the tension of being quarantined together, it's getting to be too much for these people. You nearly wanted to tell the neighbor with the, the pressure washer, hey, buddy, turn that thing on and drown <laughs> these people out. <laughs> Time to start power I, washing, I think buddy. we're all in each other's uh, business a little bit more, even if we're trying not to. Right? Like you just, it's like you're, yeah. it's reality TV in front of you. So I noticed even when I'm driving to work, like, oh, neighbor on the corner is up early this morning watching TV. Like you just, there's so much more that you notice because people are home. So we want to know this morning if you've had any neighbors who are driving you crazy or how you've managed to work this, or maybe you haven't worked it out yet. Uh, call our buzz line 604 331 buzz. That's 331 Or you can email me, simmy at cknw.com. Nikki, you live in a condo building. Other than that, has everything been okay? You know what? I got to say, I do have great neighbors. The neighbor just to the right of me, she leaves soup at my doorstep on a Aww. regular basis. Uh, shout out to Kath. She's a wonderful neighbor. That is so lovely. There you go. Maybe people want to give a shout out to their lovely neighbors. You never know, right? Hey, that's not a bad idea. I, mean, I really on. want to hear the crazy neighbor stories, yeah, that to too. be honest. For but, sure. Yeah. <laughs> for sure. Thanks for that, Nikki. For sure, Thanks, we want to hear your great neighbor stories and your crazy neighbor stories. Is there something that's really bugging you or is there something you really admire about your neighbors? You can email me, simmy at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. We're launching the Canada Emergency Student Benefit to provide immediate help. At the same time, we will create new student jobs and double student grants, among other things. That was Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. He was speaking at his daily media availability yesterday. Of course, that comes up at 8.15 every morning, and we'll have it live for you again this morning. But we wanted to talk more about this particular program. When will it be available for students out there? So joining us now is Carla Qualtro, the Federal Minister of Employment, Workforce Development and Disability Inclusion. Thank you very much for being back with us. My pleasure. How soon will students be able to access this program? program will be effective as of May 1st, retroactive to May 1st, and we're hoping to have it online by mid-May. Okay, and so will there be a portal? Like, will it be similar to the CERB process? It will be as simple and straightforward as the CERB with just different language in what you have to affirm because you're affirming you're a student or you're going to study in the fall or you've been studying or you've just graduated. So it'll have different language, but exactly the same as otherwise as, as a CERB. Okay, and how is this going to work? Does anybody qualify? So this is for students who have recently graduated from post-secondary or students who are continuing or going into post-secondary in September. So whether it's your first year, your third year, whether you're full-time or part-time, you qualify for this benefit. 
Okay. And so you, do you have to submit kind of proof of going to a post-secondary institution? You won't have to submit proof up front. So just like the serve, you have to attest or affirm or basically swear mm-hmm. that, you know, you, that, that you are a student or you're continuing studies. But at the back end, CRA reserves the right to check and make sure you actually did, or at least that was your intention or you have graduated. So we do the checking again later on. Okay. Now, if all the students can apply for this, then I understand. I also heard a part yesterday where the prime minister said, even students who continue to work up to a certain amount can still qualify for this. How does that work? Right now, we're looking at a threshold of around $1,000, but we're still working out the details. Like the CERB, this benefit will have to be legislated. So we have to get a, a new law in front of the House of Commons, ideally next week, so we can put this into place. And the details like that will obviously be part of the law, but they will also be negotiated and they'll be debated on the floor of the House of Commons. So we're looking at some level of income threshold, but I can't tell you exactly what that is beyond just like the CERB, we're thinking $1,000. Right. And so that would be even if they work a couple days a week, they would still be able to access this money theoretically. Yeah. So $1,000 is about half time um, uh, minimum wage job. So about you know, half time, two two weeks of the month, you can work full, you know, full time, but and still get it. Okay, and I I understand, like you were saying, this will be for May, June, essentially the summer months when normally students would be working. Yeah, the idea is we recognize that there will be not as many opportunities for students. Students are very worried, they're anxious about how they're going to pay their bills this summer, but also how they're going to save to continue on with their studies in the fall. And so this package included this direct income support for students. And I'll add that for students with disabilities or students with dependents, the amount is higher. Um, but there's also a significant increase to Canada student loan eligibility and Canada student grants, um, as well as a service grant or bursary from the federal government, where if you volunteer for a certain number of hours this summer, you'll get up to $5,000 from the government towards your education. Okay, do we know how many hours that's going to take? Yeah, so it, if if you volunteer for 100 hours, you'd be eligible for $1,000. If you volunteer for 300 hours, you'll be eligible for $3,000. And 500 hours is $5,000. So 500 hours is a long, it's, a, it's basically a full-time commitment in a volunteer or service capacity. But at the end of it, you'll be able to receive $5,000 for your efforts. And you also have been able to qualify for the student benefit. Right. Okay. And I understand as well, the Prime Minister said, you know, they're working on a summer jobs program for students, which is usually what, you know, students are looking for in the summer. What kind of jobs are we talking about here? So the federal government has a number of youth employment programs. We've got the Canada Summer Jobs, which provides 70,000 jobs across the country. And in addition to that, yesterday's measures announced another 116,000 employment opportunities across the country through our various initiatives. We have a youth employment strategy. So these will be jobs in essential services, primarily where it's the healthcare or agriculture or food service provision, and as well as volunteer organizations that need support. So young people can go work for Boys and Girls Club, can go work for the Kids Help Phone, get some experience. And so we're hoping that even if your summer doesn't look like what you thought it would, that you'll still get some really important learning and and fulfillment out of either volunteering and getting the service grant or working and getting a different kind of an experience. Okay, and where is the information about those jobs? Where can students access that? So uh, absolutely the same place. So Canada.ca is the place to go, and there's a youth portal from there, or more specifically Canada.ca 
forward slash coronavirus, and you can go through there. But basically, if you go on the Government of Canada's website, it's very easy to find. Okay. Is this part of the continuing thing? I know, I know that things are always changing, right? And it feels like every day we hear about somebody kind of falling through the cracks. How quickly is government having to move right now? We are moving at breakneck speed. And, you know, Canadians deserve no less. But I can tell you that public policy decisions that probably in normal days would take 18 months to two years to develop an initiative, we're making in five, six days. We then have to legislate it. We then have to implement it. What what you'll see then is that sometimes it's taking us a while to figure out how everything plays together and the interplay between these various initiatives. But at the end of the day, the goal is that nobody is left behind. Right. So how do you do that then? Like in your office capacity, you said normally something that would take a year to 18 months. Are you fast tracking the information? Like where do you access the details and the data and everything to make these decisions? Well, First of all, we look to use existing programs and we look to use existing systems so that we don't have to design something brand new. So on the youth employment piece, for example, we look to see how we could beef up existing programs, fund more jobs through these programs so we didn't have to create anything new. We just had to create more opportunities through them. In delivering benefits, we looked around the government of Canada to figure out which system could do it most reliably and quickly. So as we've come up with these ideas, and, and I should say at the very beginning of this, we sat down in my department in particular and brainstormed of all the possible things that we could deliver and how. So we had a really good idea of what systems we had at our disposal, what policies we could use, what legislative authority I had. So we had a bit of a roadmap in terms of the how we could do something. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, it was really figuring out the what, but we would, we would not commit to doing something we didn't know we could deliver. So this is like a unique time. You look back on this and go, how did we get through this? Like, I think a lot of people are going to be thinking it that. Is, it is an extraordinarily unique time. Um, and it's, it's, it's spawning some really creative and innovative thinking around how government can do things different, how we can deliver things quickly and more efficiently. You know, it, you're seeing the, the, the given the, 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 the to and fro of integrity versus quick delivery. How many, how much do we want to, put robust measures in the front to make sure people comply. It's been a fascinating government experiment. Well, we'll see how it goes. Uh, Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thanks for your time. That's Carla Qualtrough, Federal Minister of Employment, Workforce Development and Disability Inclusion. That's going to be one of the things I'm going to be really interested in watching when we move past this emergency situation that we are in and when hopefully we can return to some kind of uh, normalcy in Canada. And that is the making sure and then double checking. And they're, they, you know, they said if you're going to have to pay taxes on your CERB payments, they're going to make sure that they claw it back from people who claimed it, who, you know, didn't, uh, shouldn't have claimed it or didn't qualify for it. And all of those processes that, as Carla Qualtro pointed out, they're going to worry about afterwards as opposed to now in order for them to deliver it more quickly, something that we haven't really seen government do before. This is Mornings with Simi. I was very heartened to hear that the Premier is thinking about how we can find a way to safely restart our film and television industry. We are already work, uh, we are ready to work with the province and the industry to think creatively and make this happen while keeping everyone safe. 
That was Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart yesterday. We know that the film industry is a huge and crucial revenue generator for the city, for people's jobs. But they are, of course, facing the same challenges as everyone else. And they're also thinking about how to get restarted. So we thought, how are they doing this? What is the planning that is going on? Well, to talk more about that, we're joined by Prem Gill, the CEO of Creative BC, for more on this. Good morning, Prem. Hi, Simi. So what is it like right now for you in terms of your job and managing what's going on? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, we work very closely across the sector with the unions and the guilds, industry associations, the safety authorities, and everybody's really obviously paying attention to the direction from the public health authorities, both provincially and federally, and all those issues, um, you know, everybody's tracking to really get an understanding of what safe restart looks like and how it may be phased in. And yes, as you've noted um, earlier, the global production industry basically has been paused um, and that's the physical production industry, but there are some aspects of the industry that are still functioning and still working and quite busy, like visual effects and animation. Um, people are working at home. Many of the local companies very quickly adapted and set up their employees to be able to work from home. So there's different aspects of the industry that are still moving along, but definitely the focus is on when is the time for safe restart and how will that be phased in? Yeah, and how, what will that actually look like then? Are we talking about scaled-down film shooting? Yeah, I don't think there's anything fully determined yet, but there's definitely, um, you know, as we begin to understand what the number of large gatherings, I mean, as many people know, film and television productions do involve dozens and dozens yeah. of people in some cases. So what is, is it going to be a slow restart where perhaps we start with pre-production and, um, again, the employers, the studios, the producers, um, you know, the labor organizations, everybody's really looking at this together because, of course, the first priority is health and safety. So what are the things that may have to change in production and on set? There's a lot of scenarios and uh, really creative minds mm-hmm. that have, a, have time on their hands right now that are really thinking about the best and the safest way and working collaboratively with the municipalities um, and the province, because as the other piece of it is that we are an industry that is out shooting on the streets and in places, in mm-hmm. public places. So what does that look like? So really, again, it's such a coordination across so many different pieces, but it's being looked at through the industry associations um, and the producers of the large productions themselves, because it's, you know, it may be a customized approach depending on the type of production it is. Uh, But there's definitely a focus on when it's safe, what can things look like, and what is that phased approach. And are you worried at all about border issues? Because even if you can get ramped up, I mean, what happens if there aren't enough American productions that can come up here? Yeah, I mean, largely we have, you know, 60,000, 70,000 people that work in the production industry here. And certainly we have such a strong relationship with you know, Los Angeles and Hollywood and the talent um, and the people that, you know, have the ease in crossing the border. So that will be a lot of work, again, with both federal authorities and provincial authorities and understanding what the border looks like, what kind of actions need to be taken in terms of talent going back and forth and complying with those. But really, um, you know, trying to work together on understanding what those will be like. We kind of know what the next 30 days are. But what is it beyond that? So, you know, absolutely, it's it's a you know, very important factor in this. Um, and we can't really speculate until we really do get that direction from 
the right. federal and provincial authorities and really work with them in understanding what uh, would support this sector in creating, uh, you know, some of those eases in any border-related issues. So what kind of timeline, then, are you working from? Well, I think it's the same timeline that so many industries are, right? Like, we are really, um, you know, of course, everybody, people are eager to get back to work across so many industries, including this one. But first and foremost, it's the safety aspect. And, you know, if we think about, you know, things ramping up later spring, early summer, um, you know, again, kind of mapping out those various start timelines. But, you know, right now, I think we just are paying attention to, you know, Dr. Bonnie Henry, you know, she says measures are for now, it's not forever. And we really take that to heart in terms of this kind of planning and, and being, you know, cautiously optimistic in what restart looks like and making sure that when the green light is there, that we're ready to move. There's such an irony, though, isn't there, Prem, with this? Because this is a time when there's more content being consumed than ever before Mm -hmm. because people are at home, but more content is difficult to produce. Yeah, and, you know, British Columbia is a critical part of that global ecosystem when it comes to content production and, um, you know, being one of the largest production centres in North America, um, we are fortunate that a lot of that post-production visual effects and animation work is continuing to get new content online for us as audiences and consumers. Um, but, you know, we, we do want, everybody wants, obviously, to get back to work, whatever your business is, and certainly the sector's no exception. You think we can come back as big as before? You know, I, I think that we have all the elements in place. We have the infrastructure. We have such a strong, dedicated workforce um, you know, I, I can't predict what uh, global companies and other jurisdictions will do. But, you know, I do think that we are very strongly positioned to continue to remain an important part of the, the ecosystem of global film and television production. All right, Prem, thank you. Thanks, Amy. And good luck. That is Prem Gill. She's the CEO of Creative BC. That's the organization that kind of oversees all of the different creative industries in BC, including film, television, publishing, you name it. Uh, And yeah, they are looking at ways of starting to potentially get people back to work as both the premier and the mayor uh, were saying yesterday. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, we like to showcase some companies that are, you know, raising money for different causes. And here's another one for you. And I actually, I was checking this one out during the commercial break. I like it a lot. It's a local t-shirt design company. They're raising funds for the charity Conquer COVID-19. Nikki Reitmeyer spoke to the co-owner of this company. It's called Silver Icing, and her name is Christina Marcano. She talked about the t-shirts that they're making for this fundraiser, which in big letters on the t-shirt features a list of the names of prominent female Canadian doctors like Dr. Bonnie Henry, Dr. Teresa Tam, Dr. Dina Hinshaw. Here's more. And they were the ones who really emerged as kind of leading authorities over everything that's happening with COVID, uh, which was extremely inspirational. A hundred years ago when we had the Spanish flu, women didn't even have the right to vote. And a hundred years later, we're now some of the leaders that are actually leading us through it. So it's very inspirational, especially for somebody who has two young daughters. Oh, that's really interesting to think about that you have two young daughters who are now watching on TV, female doctors lead our nation through through this pandemic. How old are your daughters? So I've got a seven-year-old and a three-year-old. So definitely conversations with my seven-year-old on it, which was interesting. It was hard actually trying to explain to her about the history of women. It's a little foreign for her. She feels very equal, obviously, to her brother and to all of her classmates. 
so just talking about, you know, how inspirational it is to have women up there. They can be doctors. They can do what they want to do in life without restriction. And I think having these women up there front and center, making the decisions and really leading us through it is just the perfect in-life example for them. Seeing people in real life, these role models, is really the difference maker. Fantastic. So you are selling the shirts and you're raising some funds as well, right? We are. So 100% of the net proceeds are going to Conquer COVID-19, which is an amazing organization. And what they're doing is they're supplying PPE supplies to frontline workers and any kind of support in terms of supplies and equipment that um, our frontline workers might need. They're there to support them on it. Okay, so that is Christina Marcano. She is with Silver Icing. She's one of the co-owners. Now, they are doing this T-shirt, and it's a really cool T-shirt, actually. If you check it out online, I was just doing that, and you can find it at silvericing.com. And all the net proceeds, as you heard her say, will go towards Conquer COVID-19. This is Mornings with Simi. We've had a lot of people reach out to us asking how anybody, average person, can help frontline workers. Maybe you can't necessarily make a financial contribution to a local charity, or maybe you're unable to get out, deliver groceries, but you do perhaps have some time on your hands. Well, joining us now is Chris Harrison with the Kinsman Lodge, the Director of Recreation and Volunteer Services, and he is coordinating a Sew For Us campaign in an effort to get more face masks into the hands of frontline workers. Chris, thanks so much for being here. You're welcome. Tell me, how did you get this started? Um, It was a brainchild of the leadership team here at Kinsman Lodge. Um, There's a similar group in Kamloops called Sew The Curve. And so they've been sewing masks up there for the community, largely. Um, and they've been sewing stuff like uh, masks and scrub bags for frontline workers. Uh, and at this point in time, they've done about 6,000 masks in Kamloops. Wow. Yeah. Okay, so, so you so, had a lot of sewers. Uh, that, that was in Kamloops. So here in Surrey, we thought, well, we can do that. So about three weeks ago, we started up the Facebook page, and it's been glowing incrementally. So currently at Kinsman Lodge, I got about uh, 10 sewers, I think, going on, volunteer sewers, and we've made about 600 masks at this point in time. Listen, that's pretty darn good. And I know I've had many people who sew, who uh, write me to say, how can they help out? So what do you need? How do you keep everybody in fabric and product? Uh, so what you're looking at is Kinsman Lodge made an investment of about $1,000 for materials to start. Wow, okay. Um, so that's kind of where we started out. And then on the Facebook page, we set up where we're asking people to volunteer. We have um, some Google Forms there you can fill out, and you can let me know if you can make masks and you have the material, uh, if you can make the masks and you don't have the material, and I can try to set you up with the material, uh, and there's also a form if you're interested in having some masks. Now, Chris, have you ever had a situation like this before where people are just like, I want to help, whatever I can do? Um, so, Kinsman Lodge is a long-term care facility, mm-hmm. so in long-term care facilities, there's always a community around the facility. So in that sense, uh, we do have family members, volunteers come in and want to contribute. Like, uh, for instance, I'm the director of volunteer services here as well. So on average, through the year, we have about 200 volunteers as well. 
So, like, and again, that was part of the impetus of this, is we know that the community, there's people in the community that want to give their time and effort to help. So what is it that you need from the public on this, if anything? Um, go to the Facebook page, um, join the group, um, let me know if you're willing to sew masks, and especially at this point in time, if anybody has fabric that they want to donate. Okay, so any kind of fabric is suitable for this, or? So what I'm looking for specifically is 100% cotton for the masks. That's what's most breathable. So Okay, and any pattern? I'm sure you can get some unique patterns here as well. Um, in my office, I have various floral. I have plain. Uh, <laughs> I had someone donate some masks that have, uh, it's a kid's pattern with bats on it. I love it's, it. So it's in the they're, they're unique. Like if you go to the web, the Facebook page again, you can see a number of the masks that have been made by the group. So okay, so what is that Facebook page again? It's uh, so for us. So S E W the number four and then us. Okay, and this is all for the Kinsman Lodge. And so you just if what people want to pitch in and help out, they can do that. Exactly. All right. Well, thank you so much, Chris. You're very welcome. That is Chris Harrison, the Kinsman Lodge Director of Recreation and Volunteer Services. I mean, I've had a number of these emails, too, where people go, I can sew a mask. What can I do with this mask once I sew it? Or what should I be doing with this? Well, guess what? Chris says you can join their effort. It's the Sew for Us campaign. And as he said, S-E-W, the number four, and then us. You can find them on Facebook and you can get organized with them and you can definitely help them out. Love stories like that. I really do love the creativity people have in making their own masks these days, too. I've seen some pretty uh, cool ones. You've got some fabric lying around. You've had it lying around for a while. This is a great, uh, great cause for that. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, this is the time of the show every day where we like to focus on good news and people being helpful, as we just heard there. And so we have some for you right now. We were talking earlier on the show about the Western Hockey League's Bantam draft that happened yesterday. They made some history there in that 2020 draft, uh, first of all, because it was held completely online for the first time ever because of the pandemic situation. But we also like to point out a few little happy notes from right here at home. And for us, it was very much right here at home. So joining me now, first off, we have our CKNW senior reporter, uh, Janet Brown. Good morning, Janet. Good morning, Simi. How are you? Nice to chat. Good, thank you. How are you? And isn't it nice that we're chatting about something that is good news? It really is. And you know, the good news that my son, Sam, was drafted by the Vancouver Giants yesterday, you know, it really gave me some you know, something under my wings to make me sail a little higher. And I think everybody joined in in that good news yesterday, too, because it's been a rough several weeks. It's been really tough sledding. And yes, it was some good news. And I'm really happy for him that he's been drafted and excited for him as well. Oh, we are so happy for you and your family. And you're right. I think everybody embraces. I noticed people went crazy yesterday when you announced this on social media, (laughs) because we all do embrace some really happy news. So let's also congratulate Sam Brown, who's been drafted by the Vancouver Giants. Good morning, Sam, and congratulations. Hi, thank you very much. How, How are you, you? feeling? How are you feeling right now? I'm really good, thanks. Very excited to be a part of the organization now. Now tell me, were you surprised, Sam? Like it must be really nervous to sit there and wait, and especially when you're doing it in front of a computer this year too. Uh yeah, I was uh really nervous. But right before I got drafted, uh the Giants called my dad and then we found out I was gonna get drafted. Oh that's nice. So you had the heads up. 
Uh-huh. That's really nice. Now, um, Sam, what's it like having Janet Brown as your mom and at your games ringing that cowbell for you all the time? <laughs> um, it's really cool that my mom supports me that much because she was a big part of it, taking me to hockey practice every morning and driving me to all the away games, some couple some over hours to get there. No kidding, right? And she, I always saw her tweeting about how early she was at the rink. So it's really, a, it's a family thing, isn't it, Sam? Yeah, uh, my family's a big part of this, definitely. But we don't also want to diminish what you did. Janet, tell us how much of a hard worker your son is. <laughs> you know, you can, as a parent, you support your child, you feed them, make sure they right, eat the right food, get them up early for practice, often before four in the morning, you drive them to the practices and the games. But you know, the rest is up to the child and he has a really strong work ethic. I always said to him, if I had to pull you out of bed and you wouldn't get out of bed for practice, we're not going. Hockey's over. He would pop out of bed at 10 to oh. four in the morning, get ready. He'd be the one pulling um, his dad and me out of bed <laughs> to get up and get ready to drive him to the rink. And, you know, even now with what's going on, he's out in our garage for hours shooting pucks. And I have to say, he's put a puck through the door a couple of times, but, you know, it's all part of the practicing and getting ready and preparing. He has a good work ethic and uh, a good attitude about it, keeps his nose to the grindstone. And I think work ethic, no matter what you do, will get you through. Oh, so true. Listen, Sam, again, congratulations. I look forward to you doing really big things so I can say, hey, I know that kid, and I know his family. So congratulations, okay? Yes, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Simi. Congrats, Janet and family. Her son, Sam, uh, drafted by the Vancouver Giants yesterday in the 2020 um, Bantam draft that they had. So we congratulate the Giants uh, for picking him and, of course, the whole Brown family. It's huge. Anytime you know somebody, right, who gets drafted like that, it does turn into a a big deal because you're like, I know those people. Look, at this is going to be great. And I do look forward to seeing Sam's name in the years ahead. Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the Great White North and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.